Salutations, world, and welcome to Pretend You Read It, a podcast about classic literature. Today, we will be diving into one of my favorite little books. It is A Room with a View by E.M. Forster. Yes, there is a movie adaption uh, of this with Helena Bonham Carter and Julian Sands, who is fine. Uh, make sure you check that out. But today, it's all about that literary magic, so let's carry on. A little bit about E.M. Forster. E.M. Forster was born Henry Morgan Forster, but accidentally baptized as Edward Morgan Forster in London in 1879, so hence the E.M. instead of what would be H.M. His family was well off, and after one of his, a, like a relative of his died, I think it was an aunt, he inherited enough money to live on while he tried to be a writer. Lucky him! Uh, he went to Cambridge, like the lads do, and did all of the fancy English guy things that you do in, you know, the Victorian era. After university, he traveled around Europe with his mom. He was very close with his mom. And later on, he went to India and Egypt as well. Uh, he was a conscientious objector to World War I, and instead he volunteered with the Red Cross in Egypt. So good on you. Uh, he was gay, actually, and open to his close friends, which was cool, you know, for the time period, for sure. But he was not publicly out. And he developed a long-term relationship with a married policeman named Bob Buckingham, which I guess his wife was totally cool with. After writing his book, A Passage to India, in 1924, he got involved in radio for the BBC. And over his lifetime, he was honored by universities and was heavily involved in, like, small, intimate groups of writers and philosophers. Ugh goals. Uh, through his work with the BBC, he did a lot of public readings and reviews and did quite a bit of traveling as well. God, dream life. And he died in 1970 from a stroke at Bob's home and his ashes were mixed with Bob's when he died four years later. Precious. Uh, he had five novels published in his lifetime and the third one was called A Room with the View in 1908. So, the book. First part takes place in Italy, second part takes place in England. So, in Italia. The book begins with cousins Lucy and Charlotte, and they're both on vacation in Florence, Italy. First off, Lucy's full name is Lucy Honeychurch, which might be the most English fucking last name I've ever heard in my life. Secondly, Charlotte is her older cousin, and she is annoying as hell. Um, she's kind of like that overbearing, sheltered aunt that's always trying to keep an eye on you. But on the other hand, she's also completely self-deprecating because she's, like, she's not poor, you know, but she's kind of poorer. And is only there because Lucy's mom paid for her to go as her chaperone. So throughout the book, you're just like, ugh, shut up, Charlotte, like, every time she opens her mouth. But it's kind of a minor detail-ish, I would think, but ties into the whole title, obviously. So um, they're given a room at this hotel that is not facing the Arno River, which is what they wanted. It just sort of faces like a dirty alley or something. And being, you know, upper middle class white ladies on vacation in Italy, they definitely complain about it. Uh, it's actually kind of this weird back and forth where Lucy's bummed out there's no view and she says that. And Charlotte is like, oh yeah, well, it's no big deal to me. And Lucy feels weird. She's like, oh, am I being a brat? And she's like, oh, well, I meant like we should both have a view, you know? And Charlotte feels weird, though, and she says, oh, oh, yes, your mom would be so mad if you didn't have a view. I'll make sure that you have one. And from there springs the entire catalyst for the first part of the book. How will they get a room with a view like they were promised? So at dinner, it's like a communal dinner, 
they bring up the room thing just because. And there's two men at the table, uh, Mr. Emerson and his son, George. Both are kind of weird. Uh, if you've seen the film version of this, then you know that George is made a little less weird by Julian Sands because if he was ugly and weird, then, you know, this book would be over. But uh, he's kind of a hottie in this one. So anyway, Lucy and Charlotte mention the room thing and the Emersons insist on swapping with them because their room does have a view. And Charlotte thinks like, oh, who's this loud old guy? Like, no. And so she says no several times, but eventually gives in. One of my favorite quotes actually on this, she says, quote, Miss Bartlett, though skilled in the delicacies of conversation, was powerless in the presence of brutality. End quote. Aren't we all? Uh, Lucy and George kind of give each other the eye, but she just sort of brushes it off. There's a whole host of other characters in the hotel, too. Um, There's Mr. Beebe, who's the local priest or vicar or whatever they say, uh, from their hometown, actually. So small world. And can I just say again, this is all the most English sounding. They talk about like Tunbridge Wells and Summer Street and their houses called like Windy Corner. All sound like a, you know, isn't (laughs) Coronation Street? Wasn't that like a soap whatever in the uk like all of these sound like soap names but anyway so uh there are also some nice old ladies and a writer miss lavish eleanor lavish who is pretty you know progressive for her the time because she's traveling alone as well she's like yeah i'm here i'm a writer Mm." so the next morning miss lavish and lucy kind of ditch charlotte and go wandering around the city and Miss Lavish then eventually wanders off and ditches Lucy. And Lucy sort of wanders into a church where she bumps into, you know, the father-son duo, the Emersons. And now Mr. Emerson is just kind of like commenting loudly at things while his son just kind of quietly trails behind him, which truly sounds like my mom and I when we go out. Uh, and Lucy kind of warms up to them. She's like, they're kind of weird. Like, they're kind of kooky. I, I like it. Uh, the next day she's kind of just kind of hanging around a square when she sees some guy get stabbed in a fight and die, which is kind of gnarly even for today's standards, honestly. Uh, But, you know, as good Edwardian girls do, she faints. Um, But conveniently, George shows up in the nick of time before, you know, she smacks her little head on the pavement. And after she comes to, they have a really nice little talk, and you can kind of tell they're catching feels. There's this one weird part, though, where she's like, oh, I forgot my photos in the square. I got some, like, pictures or something. And he's like, oh, I'll get them. Goes to get them. There's, like, some blood on them. And he comes up to her, and she sees that he has them, and then he, like, throws them in the river. (laughs) And he's like, oh, they had blood on them. And that, yeah, it's just awkward. I don't know. George is a weird guy. Um, so... Yeah, so she kind of feels weird about her feelings a little bit, that she's, like, kind of, she thinks kind of cute kind of thing. So she just starts to, like, avoid him. Uh, Mr. Emerson, however, notices the chemistry between them and says this to her, quote, Now, don't be stupid over this. I don't require you to fall in love with my boy, but I do think you might try and understand him. You are nearer his age, and if you let yourself go, I am sure you are sensible. You might help me. He has known so few women, and you have the time. You stop here several weeks, I suppose? But let yourself go. You're inclined to get muddled, if I may judge from last night. Let yourself go. Pull out from the depths those thoughts that you do not understand, and spread them out in the sunlight, and know the meaning of them. By understanding George, you may learn to understand yourself. It will be good for both of you. To this extraordinary speech, Lucy found no answer. End quote. It's kind of like, you know, when older people give you advice, you already know, and you sort of sigh and, like, roll your eyes, but you know that they just called you out on your bullshit, and you're like, ugh, yeah, 
I know that feeling. So other fun facts discovered on the trip is that Lucy is a super talented musician, amazing at the piano. So she's kind of Beethoven-y. And it is said, quote, if Miss Honeychurch ever takes to live as she plays, it will be very exciting both for us and for her. Okay, girl. So one day, the whole hotel crew kind of piles into some, like, buggies or carriages or whatever, and they go for a picnic out in the countryside. There's this funny bit about the driver of the carriage who has this girl, like, sitting next to him, and they're just, like, making out the whole way, which is fine. Um, but the stuffy English people are like, oh, my goodness gracious, and the the they make her get off. They make her, like, stand on the side of the road, and they're like, wait there till we come back. Like, that's so bogus. But uh, so they're all out in the fields and, uh, you know, kind of having a picnic, enjoying the, the day and people kind of wander off everywhere. And Lucy kind of wanders off and finds George standing in a field of flowers, just staring off into the distance. And so she sees him. Then he turns around and sees her and she looks at him and he looks at her and he comes up to her and he kisses her. And just super fucking romantic because it's summer and they're in an Italian flower fields and I like, yeah. So Charlotte, ugh, the wet blanket, witnesses this and drags Lucy off without letting her say anything. So literally nothing was said. He just kissed her and that was it. Uh, and before she can even say goodbye, Charlotte packs them up and she's like, we're going to Rome. And so they go to Rome the next day. Meanie. Gosh, what a buzzkill. So you see Charlotte views this all as very negative. And I guess at the time period, like they said, it was a different time. You know, they called, you know, holding hands, making love and stuff. So it's just like, it, it was a different world. So kissing was very much, you know, not something you just do, especially to a stranger, I suppose. You have to be like engaged or something. And oh, I don't know. Um, but so Lucy, like, so Charlotte says, oh, you know, I won't tell your mom what happened. Whatever. It's 1908. Uh, so in Rome, Lucy meets up with Cecil Weiss, who has such a cool name, but is a, such a complete penguin. Like, he's just, he's literally an Art Deco drawing. He's, like, tall, dark-haired, narrow, like, the teeny mustache and, like, a monocle. Um, he's, like, also super condescending, just a know-it-all, the worst kind. And he proposes to Lucy twice in Rome, and she says no twice. She can't learn your lesson. So from there, they go back to England. And so we're all back in England now in Lucy's home at Windy Corner. Or the house is called Windy Corner, I guess. Um, again, someone please tell me why that naming of the houses. So Cecil proposes to her again at Windy Corner, and she says yes. Again, doing that, like, you know, well, he's well off and socially connected, blah, 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 song and dance. He's kind of ridiculous, though. Like, he's so pretentious. Ugh. And this is where it gets interesting. So Mr. Beeb, the local priest, is also back in town. And he says new people are moving into a vacant house in the neighborhood. Turns out it's the Emersons. As fate would have it, they met Cecil Brandom in London, and he told them about the vacancy. And as luck would have it, Lucy's brother, Freddie, also meets George by chance, like at the, I think at the train station, and invites him to like come hang out. So chilling in the 1910s, or 1908, I guess, the 1900s, um, meant going to hang out at the local pond, I guess, where they meet, he's like, come for a swim. And so they get naked and they go swimming. And they also happen to meet Mr. Beep, the local priest there 
and they all get naked and go swimming. So yeah, just two dudes and a priest um, hanging out, doing the thing. So at the same time, Lucy and Lucy's mom and Cecil are out for a walk and walk right into the three of them. And they're like, oh, okay. So it's actually a pretty funny scene. Um, and after this, Fred invites George over again the next day. He's like, yeah, we're playing tennis. Like, come hang out. And Cecil's there, and it's all pretty awkward for Lucy. Uh, he sneaks, also G- George sneaks in another kiss in the garden secretly. And uh, later on, Cecil's like walking around the tennis court being boring and reading out loud from this book. And Lucy realizes that the scene he's describing or reading about is literally like the scene when George and her kissed in Italy. And uh, it's written by a Miss Eleanor Lavish, the one from Italy. What? So Lucy's pissed and is like, what the fuck, Charlotte? Because she's the only one who was there to witness it. Charlotte's like, I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. I can't believe she wrote about that. Ooh, like, she's Mosa. Hello. Uh, then Lucy calls George in. She's like, you need to go away. Charlotte's my witness. Charlotte, I'm telling him, like, he needs to leave and never come back. Meh. Um, and so he does, he makes some sort of like last ditch effort to be like, you don't really feel that way. I love you. And you know, you can't marry that fucking idiot out there because he only wants to, you know, have you as like an object. He doesn't care about you at all. Like, I want you to be your own person. Like, mm, and she's like, no. And he leaves. So, um, then though, she breaks it off with Cecil like her engagement and stuff. Um, and he kind of, I mean, actually takes it pretty well, but, uh, he just kind of exits the picture and then, so she sends George away. She breaks up with Cecil. She is single, ready to mingle. Kind of. I mean, she doesn't feel that way, but she's like, all right, well, what am I going to do now? And she gets it into her head to run off with, uh, those two old ladies from the hostel, these two old ladies that were really nice. And they're like, yeah, we're going to Greece. She's like, okay, I'll go to Greece with you. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. So she packs up, ready to go to Greece. Wish I could do that kind of thing. Um, But so she's like preparing to leave. Everyone's talking about, oh my gosh, Lucy's going to Greece. That's crazy. She just got back from Italy. Um, And so she goes to, like, she goes to say goodbye to people and stuff like that. And Mr. Emerson, because George left, he went back to London. Mr. Emerson is like, I can't not live close to my son. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm moving to, I'm moving back to London. She goes to see him, uh, Mr. Emerson. And, uh, he kind of, he delivers one of the loveliest speeches ever about how, you know, you should follow your heart. Um, I'm trying, I don't want to like quote directly like long passages on the podcast, but I'm going to make an exception because swoon. Okay. I'm paraphrasing. Quote, don't trust me, Miss Honeychurch. Though life is very glorious, it is difficult. She was still silent. Life, wrote a friend of mine, is a public performance on the violin in which you must learn the instrument as you go along. I think he puts it well. Man has to pick up the use of his functions as he goes along, especially the function of love. Then he burst out excitedly. That's it. That's what I mean. You love George. And after his long preamble, the three words burst against Lucy like waves from the open sea. But you do, he went on, not waiting for contradiction. You love the boy, body and soul, plainly, directly, as he loves you, and no other word expresses it. You won't marry the other man for his sake. 
You're shocked, but I mean to shock you. It's the only hope at times. I can reach you no other way. You must marry or your life will be wasted. You've gone too far to retreat. I have no time for the tenderness and the comradeship and the poetry and the things that really matter and for which you marry. I know that with you, I mean with George, you will find them and that you love him. Then be his wife. He is already part of you. Though you fly to Greece and never see him again or forget his very name, George will work in your thoughts till you die. It is impossible to love and to part. You will wish that it was. You can transmute love, ignore it, muddle it, but you can never pull it out of you. I know by experience that the poets are right. Love is eternal. End quote. Damn! That's real talk right there. Honestly, this is the kind of stuff that has like formed my ideas about love and relationships. Is that realistic? I don't know. But then again, is love realistic? I mean, should it be? It's love. Woo! So after this, she's like, oh my god, you're right. And they elope to Florence. And fuck if that's not romantic as all hell. The end. Ah, I know, it's kind of a, like, seems like an abrupt ending, but it really does fit very well. Um, so this is a really interesting book. I feel like it's romantic in just the right way, because obviously you're dealing with a romance, like a love story, right? But there's so much more going on there. Because I feel, I personally would say that this is a feminist novel, uh, especially for the time period. Um, just because... It's very much about, like, okay, so Lucy is this type of person who, from the beginning, we get that she is being restricted by her society, right? Like, her cousin's always telling her, like, oh, don't say that, don't do this, blah, blah, blah. You know, everyone kind of tells her that. That's just, you know, the times, right? Um, your women were, were bred from infancy to, like, look beautiful, oh, you gotta know how to play the piano. Oh, you gotta, you know, learn how to carry yourself and blah, blah, blah. But, like, your job is to get married. And if you don't get married by, like, 20, you are, like, ancient, practically, and you're doomed. So that's pretty much your life, you know? Like, women couldn't even vote at this time yet, so. Um, but you can tell that, you know, her passion for music and her, you know, willingness to be like, okay, I'm gonna go walk around the city by myself today. Like, yeah, I'm fine, you know? is stands very starkly against the society that she's in. Uh, so I think that that's really interesting. And I feel like that inner passion is slowly allowed to sort of release itself throughout the course of the book. Uh, because she, you know, there's that kiss that happens and she's like kind of okay with it. You know, I, I suppose you can make the argument that things are happening to her, that it's a result of like George's forwardness or, um, you know, Cecil's like shitty comments and stuff that she kind of sways one way or the other. But I don't think that that's true. I think, I mean, like with anything, you have people in your life, sometimes you have a feeling or thought or something like that. And sometimes you're fortunate enough to like meet people that like bring out the best in you, right? So I think George kind of does that for her. She kind of make, kind of makes her question sort of all these rules because he doesn't really care about the rules and neither does his dad. And they're both very, like, sincere, good, genuine people that are just, you know, his dad is, like, super hopeless romantic, you know? He's like, yeah, you know, love is love. He was really upset when uh, they kicked the Italian girl off of the carriage. He was like, you know, I'm, it's not right to separate lovers. And I was just like, yeah, like, that's amazing. So I think definitely being surrounded by people in your life that kind of make you question things, especially things that you already were kind of questioning, you're like, huh, okay, yeah, like... Hell yeah. 
so, and especially too, when she breaks it off with Cecil, she kind of repeats George's words verbatim about, you know, you can't love anybody because you don't understand that I'm a person. I'm not just like a pretty painting. And because that's probably what she's been wanting to say this whole time. It just didn't really know how. And Cecil's just kind of taken aback by that because he, you know, the two, I suppose, love interests in this book, right? You've got Cecil and you've got um, George. I'm going to say Julian Sands. Yeah, George are like complete polar opposites, right? Um, you've got Cecil, who's very much a product of his time, is all about like keeping up appearances and he's very stoic, but still like very pretentious and, you know, very clean looking together, like not a hair out of place kind of guy, but overly concerned with what people think and what will people think and, oh, like this person's so gruesome and, you know, like the manners are just, um, and then, you know, very much expects that Lucy will just kind of fall in line with you know, what's expected of her, right? That, wow, isn't it great that she plays piano? Like, doesn't really give a shit about like, oh, how do you, how does playing piano make you feel? As long as she can play the piano and it sounds great, right? Like, oh, like, it's like having a, like a show dog or something, right? But, uh, but George is like a completely different being altogether, you know, definitely far ahead of his time. Because uh, he's very explicit. He's like, look, like, I don't want you to just sit there like a, pretty thing I want you to have your own thoughts and your own feelings and you're your own person and that's why I love you you know and I that's what I I want you to be yourself you know and uh I think that that's interesting and the fact that Lucy kind of makes some choices that are very much out of time for her you know what I mean for that time because it's like okay she tells George to go away even though she kind of doesn't want to but does it anyway and then like prove a point and then breaks it off with Cecil. And what does any modern girl do when they're like, like, I just had this breakups, like, and they're like, I'm gonna go take a trip somewhere. Yeah, it's like girls weekend or whatever. Like, let's go to Vegas. Let's fly to Italy. Like, let's go to Bali. I don't know. Um, You go do something kind of impulsive, right? And that's exactly what she does. She's like, okay, I'm just gonna go. I'll go to Greece with these two old ladies. Like, that's what I'll just, yeah, I'm gonna do that. Um, so I think that that's really interesting. You know, it's, it's, um, very much something that like any girl I know today would do. Something I would do, something I have done actually. But, uh, there's that. And then, you know, that very headstrong personality, right? Like her just being like, I'm going to do this. Okay. Change my mind. But like, this is actually what I really want. And actually when they go to Florence at the end and they elope, and like I, you know, mentioned in last episode, eloping was like a really big deal for a long time you know like I I, probably up until like I don't know like the 40s or something but um eloping was considered very much like a black ink blot on your you know your reputation as a woman you're supposed to do things the right way so by eloping with George um the right way quote being like in a church and like all that stuff um but so by her living with George, she's probably like isolated herself from her family and uh, kind of cut them off to a degree. And, you know, that's a big deal. So I think that it's really interesting that this book was written by a man um, in 1908 because his female protagonist is very headstrong and I would consider in a lot of ways very modern um, or, you know, modern to today, contemporary 2000s, you know, 21st century kind of modern. Um and I think that that's really interesting. And that's what I really love about this book because it's it's also kind of funny too. It's actually 
really funny. So you get kind of a kick out of it. The language isn't too dated that the jokes fly over your head. So you get all the good things, right? You get a little sprinkle of like headstrong feminism. Hell yeah. And then you get like the comedy and then you get the romance and it's all the good stuff. It's like rom-coms before there were rom-coms with a little sprinkle of drama in there too. So trite, perhaps a little bit, but not too much. Happy ending without being overly saturated, you know? Um, So hell yeah. Hell yeah, Ian Forrester. So that is the end of episode three. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, I really appreciate everybody who listens to the podcast. Um, really means a lot to me that people actually care about my thoughts on books. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I got some definitely some heavy hitters in the pipeline. Some Russian literature, you know, it's kind of it takes a while, but I'm I'm chugging through. So next couple episodes, we should be diving into some of that. Um, I'm. Is there any particular like decade or like time period if anyone's interested in that in particular I was also thinking of like going to the 1920s doing some Fitzgerald so let me know if there's anything specific otherwise it's just gonna be my personal preference so yeah thank you guys so much and make sure to follow me on twitter at purypod and yeah also uh I have an instagram account now so it's at purypodcast p-y-r-i so check it out Thank you guys. All right, see you next time.